Thank you, Chelsea. If you got your Bibles, keep them open there to John 17. Like she said, it's page 753 and 754, and the blue one's in front of you. Good morning to all of you. Um, I'm gonna, before we jump into this, I'm gonna just take a quick moment uh, to just address something personally with you. My homiletics professor was named Steve Deneff. He preached against this again and again and again. He said, you have their attention to start. Don't say personal things. He would pull his hair out this morning, except he's totally bald, so he has no hair to pull out. And I'm just going to ignore him because I have to just, to, in order to give this, I have to say something to you. As many of you know, um, five and a half weeks ago, my wife gave birth to twins. And so these last 30-some days um, have been the most en enriching, joy-filled, um, fulfilling days that, I, that we've ever had as a couple. And simultaneously been the most stressful, stretching, uh, exhausting days that we've ever had as a couple. And... I bring that up because the fact that I can even present a sermon to you this morning is because of all of you. Um, the church has rallied around us in a way that, that has just blown my mind. You have brought us uh, dozens of meals. You've come by and visited. You've showered us with cards and gifts. You've, um, some of you with different expertise have come and taught us different ways to feed them to, to help make that process more efficient. You've mowed our lawn. Um, you've just went above, and you, there's, there's people who come over to their days and sit with my wife just so I can sneak off to work for a few hours and get stuff like this done. And so I literally stand on your shoulders this morning and, and could not do this without you. And so I, I say that not only just to thank all of you for being the church to us, but, but to, to repeat something I've said around here before. If, if you're relatively new here, man, give yourself to this place. We just, we just go all in. Uh, because the people here will, will love you, they will support you, they will care you, they, they will treat you in a way that you can't find anywhere else. And that's because Jesus is in our midst and, and, and you, you will not regret it. Do not, do not stand aloof and afar off. Just give yourself to the people of this place and, and you won't regret it. Um, and I, I stand as one who, who doesn't just speak to you but, but have received the full brunt of the love and, and grace of, of FBN. And so I just want to thank you before we get into this today. So... Uh, let's, let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll get into John 17. Father, we thank you uh, just for your goodness this morning, God. We thank you for your faithfulness to us in all circumstances. And God, I just thank you for each and every person who's here this morning, that you have worked in their life in such a way that you brought them to be in this room, in this hour, on this day, and it's not by accident. And so God, now as we, as we open your word, Lord, I know that, that the needs in this room are greater than one sermon topic can address. And so I pray that your spirit would just take over, God, that you would, you would meet people right where they are and, and deliver to them exactly what they need to hear this morning. And we ask all this in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, would you like to know this morning the one thing that God wants you to do in this life? That seems like a pretty important thing to know, doesn't it? You see, Christians and non-Christians alike can spend a lot of their days wondering about what their purpose for life is or what God wants them to do in this life. And honestly, I'm telling you, this whole God's will for my life thing, we, we've made this entirely more difficult than it really is. Now, there will certainly be multiple times in your life when you're facing a decision and, and you need to seek him out in prayer and discern what his specific will for you is in that moment. But I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, 99% of God's will for your life is already laid out for you in the Bible. God in his word has already given us a framework for how it is that we are to live, what it is that we are to pursue, of the motivations that we're to have, and ultimately what we are to live for. And, and as long as you stay in that framework, then specific decisions will matter way less than you think. 
It's not that God doesn't want to lead you in specific ways. It's that if you arrange your life around the framework that God's word has given us, he will not lead you astray. He will not let you go astray. And the reason is because God's will for you is way more about who you are than where you go. His will for you is way more about why you do what you do rather than just what you do. And in our passage today that Chelsea read for us, we, get, we actually get an amazing glimpse into this. Have you ever wondered if Jesus set across from you face to face, what advice he would give you one on one? Well, I think that something far more intimate than that, far more than hearing advice, intimate is, is hearing someone pray for you. Because some of the most meaningful times in my life have been hearing someone pray out loud for me. Because in prayer, what you're doing is you're appealing to the single greatest power in the universe. You're approaching the God whose abilities know no bounds. And so if you're praying something for someone, you really, really want that for them. When you pray for someone, your deepest, truest, most honest desires for them are laid bare right at God's throne of grace. And in John 17, if you're in Jesus Christ this morning, if you're a follower of his, you get to hear Jesus pray for you. And in hearing him pray for you, you hear his heart for you, you hear what he desires for you, you hear what he really wants for you. And what is laid bare for all of us is the one thing that he wants us to, point, to pour out our lives for. All this chapter, everything, everything that, that Chelsea read is one prayer by Jesus. So let's unpack it starting in verse 1. John 17 verse 1 says this. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. That first phrase sets a timeline for us, doesn't it? It says, after Jesus has said this, John is letting us know that there hasn't been a passage of time here. So if you've been with us since Judas left the group all the way back in chapter 13, verse 30, from there until now, Jesus has been speaking only to his 11 remaining disciples. He's been preparing them for what is about to occur, which is huge. He's preparing them for life on earth after he leaves them. And so after he tells them in these chapters that he's going to send the Holy Spirit and that the world will hate and persecute them and they are to remain in him, he tells them at the very end of chapter 16 where Adam got us last week that, that even though troubles are coming in this world, you will have troubles, he says. He tells them to take heart because he's overcome the world. And it's at that moment that he breaks out in prayer. And here's why I believe. I believe he wanted his disciples to hear this prayer. He's going to pray for himself briefly at the start, but then he's going to pray for them, and then he's going to pray for all who will believe in him after them, including you and I in this very room today who've done that. And I believe that Jesus wanted these men to hear his heart for them. He wanted them to hear him pray for them, and he wanted them to record it so you and I could hear it as well. And the first thing in this prayer is a recognition to his father that his time has come. Now, we've been going through John for a long time, haven't we? It's been more than a year. But do you recall that this has actually been a theme throughout the book? All the way back in chapter 2, Jesus tells his mother, it is not yet my time. In chapter 7, he's talking to his brothers and he says, it's not yet my time. In chapter 8, he's speaking in the temple courts and he's making a whole lot of people really mad. And they want to seize him and kill him and they can't. And, the, and John tells us the reason why is because it is not yet his time. But here in John 17, Jesus is acknowledging to the Father, I know, I know it's time. The time has come for Jesus to leave his disciples, to go and face and endure the wrath of God the Father for all the sins of mankind and give his life on the cross. It is time to take the blows and to endure the whipping and to be pierced by the nails, to suffer in anguish and to be completely and totally abandoned by his Father. For he must become our sin, he must absorb our sin in order for God to crush him on the cross. And Jesus is fully aware of this. He's been telling people all throughout the book that this is coming. And now praying to his father, he recognizes, I know the time is here. Which is why there's absolutely no fluff in this prayer. 
every single word, every syllable was something that Jesus deeply wanted to say. He doesn't have time to mess around. Right? This was a prayer that was not only said, but it was felt at the core of who he was. And he starts by asking his father to glorify him. Glorify your son, he prays. And what he's asking is this. He's, say, he's saying, sustain me in my suffering. Accept my sacrifice. Then resurrect me from the dead and restore to me my heavenly glory. And God is going to glorify Jesus through this process, and he will bring glory, and then Jesus will bring glory to God. And by the way, though it seems counterintuitive, it was his excruciating suffering that actually brought Jesus glory. Because you need to know, without the cross and resurrection, Jesus is just a philosopher, a teacher. In fact, I'll go a step further. Without the cross and resurrection, Jesus isn't someone you should pay attention to at all. And the reason why is because he claimed to be more. Right? He claimed to be unique. He claimed equality with God. He claimed to be your only hope for forgiveness and eternal life. He said those things. We didn't put those words in his mouth. And what backs up all those claims is his suffering. What confirms all of them is his death. And what proves him right is his resurrection. No, Jesus Christ was not the first or last to give his life for a cause greater than himself. But he was the first and the last to walk out of his own grave. And that's what makes him different, what makes him unique, what makes him better than all the rest. Because only he has the power to do that, so only he can do the things in your life that he promises to do. And it was his suffering, it was his death that set the stage for him to be glorified. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, more and more people are believing in him, being reconciled to God, which then brings God the Father glory. So Jesus continues in verse 2. He's praying, he says, For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those who you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So the cross and resurrection are what make Jesus unique. Here in these verses we see what he gives us as unique. See, far too often we have a way too limited view of God and life. God, that we think often, is that God is far off, right? That he's distant, he's aloof, and he's kind of generally just disapproving of us. He's waiting for us to slip up and make a mistake. God is like this big principal, and it's best not to be called in his office or attract his attention. And what we don't realize is that God designed us to be intimately connected with him in everything that we do. In Acts 17, Paul tells us that God chose where and when you should live. He predetermined that, and the reason for that is this. He says in Acts 17, 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. You see, the Bible makes this argument. It makes the argument that without being reconciled to God, you and I exist, but we aren't actually alive. We're actually spiritually dead. Ephesians 2 states clearly for us that we are actually dead in our sins. And Jesus is saying here that all authority has been given to him. Jesus has been in charge all the way throughout the book of John. And that will not change as he goes to the cross. And Jesus says he's going to use that authority to grant life, and not just life, but eternal life, to all who the Father has given to him. And he defines eternal life for us. And it's, so, it's such a different definition than many of us would have used. This is eternal life, he says, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life, Jesus says, is to know God, and to know God is to know Jesus. You see, eternal life isn't, it's not something off in the future. You realize that, right? It's not some destination. Eternal life is simply life with Jesus. It's having a deep, personal, intimate, dynamic, and continuous relationship with the God who created you. And you can find this only in Jesus because only he makes it possible. This is why he had to die on the cross to buy you life. 
Somebody had to take our place. Someone had to pay our price. And so he went and took our place, bought us back to himself. And in that, he not only forgives us of our sins, but he gives us life for the first time. And life that is true and lasting and eternal and ongoing. Paul's a co-author of several books in the New Testament. He writes in his letter to Philippians about his aim to life. This is a very personal section of Philippians 3. And Paul writes, what is more, I consider everything a loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. And he says in verse 10, I hear it again, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining the, to the resurrection of the dead. Paul's saying there, my one goal for life is to know Jesus more and more and more. And because of that, I can tell you this this morning. That's the man who never died. He never died. He simply transferred from one experience to the next, but his motivations never changed. His life never ended. He, was just, he just found even more fulfillment by being able to know Jesus more fully. His desires were filled. To know God is to know Jesus. To know Jesus is to know him forever. The, pur- the purpose of your existence is just that, that you would know God. And again, this is only possible through Jesus. So before we get to what Jesus prays for those who do know him, we must address this morning those of you who have not yet believed in him. As if you've never given your life to Jesus, you've never asked him to forgive you your sins and given him control of your life, you are trying to be someone you were not created to be. You try, you're tempting, right, to be the center of your existence, the answer to all your questions, the driving force of your life. You're getting a good go, but the problem is that's not who you were made to be. It's like asking a rhinoceros to live as a butterfly. They're just created for different things. You were created, according to the Bible, for life. You were created for the sole purpose of connecting with the God who made you. You were created to plug into a power that is greater and bigger and more awesome than you are. You were created for eternity. You were created to last forever. And apart from Jesus, you are spiritually dead. Apart from Jesus, you are disconnected from the God who made you. Apart from Jesus, what you have to rely on is your own limited power that runs out. Apart from Jesus, there is no hope of eternal life. And so the first plea, no, the only plea today, for those of you who have not believed in him, is this. Just give your life to Jesus. Surrender your life. Surrender your future. Surrender your everything to him. Believe in him this morning. Ask him to use his death and resurrection to forgive you your sins and, more importantly, grant you life. Today, where you're at, begin the amazing journey that will last for all eternity of having life to the fullest by getting to know Jesus more and more and more. So after praying for himself, Jesus then prays for his disciples in verses 6 through 19. These were the men that were sitting with him at this very moment, right? The ones that he chose. These are the men that he invested in, the ones ones that he loved, the ones that he's going to leave his church to. And as he prays for them, it's, it's clear what his intentions are. There's a word he keeps using. He's sending them. He's not keeping them from danger. He's not going to hide them away. He's not going to let them live their lives for any kind of selfish motive. In verse 10, he mentions how he's already received glory from them. It's already happened. That just as God the Father received glory from Jesus when Jesus did everything that God said to, Jesus received glory whenever his disciples were obedient to what he asked them to do. Which is why, if, you, if you've been here the last three weeks, why do you think he mentioned so many times in the last three chapters, John 14, John 15, John 16, he kept repeating the same line over and over again to these men, if you love me, obey my commands. He said, if you belong to me, if you really mind, do what I say. Because when we do that, he gets glory from it. 
And these remaining disciples have already brought him glory before. And his desire for them, his prayer for them is that it will continue. And so let's just pause for a second and ask the question. Is this selfish of Jesus? I mean, is he some emotionally needy narcissist that, that he would pray that his disciples would continue to bring him glory? That what he wants out of their life is for him to get all the glory? Well, no, that there's some things we need to know. First, it goes back again to how we've been created. We were created for the glory of God. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 6 and 7, God is speaking. Here's what he says. He says, bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. That's a huge line. Whom I formed and made. So you see, when Jesus wants these disciples to bring him glory, what he wants them to do is to do what they were created to do. He wants them to do what will bring them the most joy and fulfillment because that's what they've been put on this earth for. This is why this is throughout the Bible. It's why we're told in 1 Corinthians 10 that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. It's why Ephesians 1 tells us that we have been saved and our redemption has been guaranteed for the glory of God. Not for us, for him. And secondly, whenever Jesus speaks of his glory, we can know, can't we, that it's not for selfish gain. I mean, just look back at the verse. He opened this prayer by asking God to glorify his son. And what did that mean? Well, that meant this. That meant send me into the hands of wicked sinners. Let me be judged by people who cannot hold a candle to me. Allow me to be mocked and cursed. Permit mere men to whip and strike and abuse and nail me to a cross. Hang me naked and ashamed in front of a crowd of men cheering my demise. Have even a mere criminal mock me. Turn away from me, reject me, and let me die. Does that sound selfish to you? See, we can know that whatever Jesus desires for us is for our good because he proved that on the cross. And so if he wants us to bring him glory, it will be what brings us the most joy because bored and jilted and begrudging servants don't bring glory do they jesus prays that these men will continue to bring him glory and, and to do so he's sending them in the world look at verse 14 he says i've given them your word and the world has hated them for they're not of the world any more than i'm of the world my prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one they're not of the world even as i am not of it sanctify them by your truth your word is truth as you've sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For I sanctify for them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. All right, so think, think of this mission, okay? Jesus is telling these guys who are listening to this prayer, you do not belong to this world. And because of that, this world will hate you. But guess what? I'm sending you directly into that world anyways. You're not to hide away from it. You aren't to protect yourself from it. My father will protect you from the evil one, but you are to go as foreigners and aliens in this world that is not your home and will not accept you. And in doing so, you're to take my word and bring me glory. And so their life calling, their mission will be to remain in this world by remaining in Jesus. It will be to use this one short temporary life they've been given to bring glory to someone far greater than themselves. It will be to pour themselves out for the sake and cause of Jesus Christ. And it will be to spread the name of Jesus to tell his story so that more and more and more people will believe in him and find eternal life. And what began with those 11 men has spread to every corner of our world. And today, 2,000 years in an ocean removed, we gather today in the name of Jesus. And we worship him and we look at his same words for inspiration and we find eternal life in him. And it's because they took this calling very seriously. They did what he asked them to do. They started his church in Jerusalem and then to Judea and then Samaria and then the ends of the earth. And guess what? They were hated. And they were persecuted, and they were scattered, and they were killed, and Jesus' glory spread. 
and their joy increased, and they never fully tasted death after all. And wouldn't you know it, we've, you and I have been given the same mission as they were. And it's right here in this prayer, if we look close enough, look at verse 20. This, this is Jesus' transition. He's praying for you this morning. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought into complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have been given me, because you love me before the creation of the world. Listen, that's what Jesus prays for you in Aramaic to English. It's not, it doesn't flow real well. I get that. So we're going to break it down for you. But this is what he longs for you. This is what he wants. This is what he desires for you. He prays that you would see his glory. There's that word again. He prays that we'll be so in tune with God that the, that the world will know the truth of who Jesus is. That's huge. I want you to think about that. that. What he's praying is that our lives would be displays of God's love and grace. That we'd be trophies of his goodness. So that when people got to know us, they wouldn't be impressed by us as much as they would want what we have. And what we have is Jesus. That your life would actually be proof that God sent Jesus. And then there's something else that he repeatedly prays throughout. A desire he has for us that at first might seem, might seem strange that this would be Jesus' one overarching desire until we understand it. But it's there. In verse 21, he says that they may be one, Father, as you and I are one. Verse 22, that they may be one as we are one. Verse 23, so that they may be brought into complete unity. He just keeps repeating it. Now, do you remember, those of you who are, in, are, are out of school and those of you in school, do you remember what the worst assignments always were in school? This feeling has been unanimous throughout all history of education. The college students here today can definitely back me up on this. The worst assignments are always the group assignments. They're terrible, right? It's because you're going along in a school year, maintaining things okay on your own. You're doing all right. And all of a sudden, you're thrown into this group, and your success depends on other people. And I don't care where you go to school, all groups break down the same way, okay? Because every group has a slacker who just does nothing at all to help. He or she contributes nothing. Okay, let's be honest. He contributes nothing at all, Right? He totally rides the coattails of everyone else in the group, and whatever he does, whatever grade he gets, he didn't deserve it in the slightest. Then you've got the group showboat. All right, this person can hardly be found during all the research and detail work, but come presentation day, that guy wants to take center stage, and oftentimes they have the personality to get away with it. And then there's the nerdy one, right, who just takes the whole thing way too seriously. And he or she, all right, let's be honest, she wants to do hours of research and prep that just simply aren't necessary, right? And, and all these personalities come together and they create an experience that absolutely nobody enjoys at all. Nobody. And the reason is because their motivations and missions, are, they're not united. They're all given the same task, but their motivations are selfish. They all have the same assignment, but their mission is seen differently by each of them. For some, it's to do more than necessary. For some, it's to do as little as possible. For some, it's to work as a group. For others, it's to steal the spotlight. And what happens is these experiences make us think that we haven't been designed to work with others and nothing could be further from the truth. We need other people. We need community. We need to work together towards a common goal. But in doing so, the only way that works is if we have the same motivation and the same mission. 
This is why those of you who've been on short-term mission trips, when people go on those, they come back so much closer with the people they travel with because for that week or more, everyone had different roles and different skills, but they were all working for the same purpose. And it's that united motivation, singular mission that makes that group experience so much more valuable. And I want you to understand, that's what Jesus is praying for us here. When he prays that we would be one, that we would have complete unity. This is not a kumbaya, hold your hands, hold, hold each other's hands and sing around the fire kind of a deal. And we also need to understand this. This is not a calling to ignore real things that should cause division. Now, I don't, I don't like division. Okay, I'm not a fan of conflict. I don't think I'm alone in that. If you're out there today and you like arguing division, get counseling, bro. That's a terrible way to go through life. Right? But there are absolutely things that we need to be divided by. Do you know that? In Ephesians 2, the Bible says this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. And then three huge words, not by works, so that no one can boast. That is God's word telling us that, that we have been saved by the free gift of grace, and that gift comes to us through Jesus and Jesus alone and faith in him. It's only by believing in Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection that we can be saved. And hear me, we cannot add to that. You can't put works on top of that. It's why in Galatians 6, Paul goes on to say this, may I never boast at all except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, I put no stock, I brag in nothing but what Jesus did for me on the cross. This is at the heart of our faith. This is why 1 Corinthians 15 tells us this. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and listen to this language, on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Galatians chapter 1 says this in verse 6 through 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say it again, if anybody is preaching you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. See what those verses are telling us of this. We cannot use this desire of Jesus for us to be unified to then be flexible with the gospel. So though we are against the vision around here, we don't look for it, we don't like it, we must permit the gospel to divide us. And if anyone wants to add to it, if anyone wants to change it, we simply cannot be fully united with them. So there's a church that wants to claim that Jesus isn't God, that somehow he was created. We cannot freely serve and minister with and work alongside them. And there's a church that teaches you must be baptized to be saved, therefore adding a work on top adding to the gospel, we cannot enjoy unity with them. And there's a church that teaches you must confess your sins to a human priest or church leader to be forgiven of them. We cannot enjoy unity with them. If there's a church that teaches that in order for you to be saved, you must experience some miraculous or charismatic gift like speaking in tongues or healing, then we cannot enjoy unity with them. Listen, on lesser things, we don't have to agree on everything. We just don't. But on the gospel... We must hold true to the gospel, the pure gospel, and nothing else. We cannot add to it, and we cannot subtract from it. We cannot be ashamed of it, because it is only the gospel that is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Now, that said, the unity that Jesus prays for is so much bigger than this place. 
is so much bigger than you, right? It's for all who have called on him in salvation to be completely united in mission and motivation and purpose. And our mission is for the name of Jesus Christ to spread all over the earth. Our mission is to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has taught us. Our mission is to build the kingdom of God everywhere that he sends us. And there's no other mission worth giving our life to. And all who are active in this mission, all who are part of the big C church, are, we are unified within this mission. And so we must work in connection with one another. We must work in harmony with one another and not be jealous or skeptical of one another. Right? Any church, and I shouldn't even need to say this, but any church that teaches and proclaims the true gospel is a friend of FBN. We put zero stock or worth in our denomination. We compete with no one. We do not see ourselves as more important than any other gospel teaching church, and it's because we've been given the same mission they have. And so when there's a church down the street that has more numbers and more baptism, their ministry goes, praise God for them because the name of Jesus is being spread. If there's a chance that we can unite with another gospel proclaiming church in this town to spread the name of Jesus to our community, you better believe we're going to do it. And it's not only because we have the same mission, because of the same motivation. And our motivation for life, our motivation for this mission we've been given is for Jesus Christ to be glorified in everything that we do. There is no greater mission, there is no greater calling, there is no greater purpose for your life than to bring Jesus glory. And so I'm going to say this this morning, if, if you belong to Jesus Christ, and it is not the driving, overarching aim of your life to build his kingdom and to tell others about him and bring him glory, then there's only a handful of reasons that can be happening. And the first is this, that you simply don't understand the calling. You just don't get it. You don't yet fully know that nothing can compare to this. And so what you're doing is you're settling. You're settling for an experience of getting your God time here at church and then living the rest of your life seeking your own glory. And what you don't know is just how much you're missing out on. What you don't know is just how much that's killing your soul. You have no idea what God would do in your life if you would look at all that he's given you and try to bring him the most glory you can with it. So what happens when this isn't in place is this. Your sufferings are just suffering. You just go through hard, difficult times and they have no purpose. And there's nothing worse than purposeless suffering. Your stuff is just stuff that doesn't last and is wasted on you. Your home is just something that owns you more than you own it. And it's never leveraged to the glory of God. Your money is wasted entirely on you. Your skills and talents never bless anyone but you. And in all this, what you're missing out on is an abiding joy and fulfillment that you can never find living for yourself. The most miserable people on this earth always think of themselves. Engage the mission. Live for the glory of Christ. Think of others. I pray and ask God how tomorrow you can take a fresh look at your day and look for opportunities to share Jesus with others, to, to serve others and to bring glory to God. The second reason you may be punting on this mission is that you do understand the calling, but you're just going about it the wrong way. And we can get this wrong on both sides. You see, we have the same mission the disciples had. And so when Jesus prays for them here in John 17, we can read that also as a prayer for us. And so when he prays in verse 15 that they are not to be taken out of the world, and in verse 18 that he's sending them into the world, that applies to you and I. Now, heaven will be a place of endless enjoyment, a place of endless peace, a place of endless fulfillment, and almost everything that we can do for God now we can do in heaven. But this right here, this is a unique calling to our life right now. 
We get one chance. We get one chance at influencing our world for God. We get one life on this earth to live for the glory of God. We get one opportunity to lead other people to Jesus. In heaven, you don't get that chance. That time has passed. And so if your strategy in this mission is to somehow hide away, to seclude yourself from this world, to try and protect your family instead of trusting God to, man, you're punting on this amazing mission. If you're never around non-Christians, you never engage with them, if you try and create some safe, comfortable bubble around yourself, if you avoid people who think differently than you and believe differently than you and, and, and live differently than you and look differently than you, then I'm telling you with all the love that I can muster, God simply is not impressed with you. You have been sent. You've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. You've been given the word and the gospel. You've been called to live for the glory of God by spreading his name and fame. How can you possibly do that if you build walls around your life and never invest in others who are not like you? How can you share the hope of Christ with those who need it if you're not in relationship with them? How can you possibly say that you are living on mission if there is no one in your life right now that you are actively pursuing with the intentions of sharing the gospel with them? You are not called to a private faith in Jesus. You've been called to this mission. That's one way to miss it. The other way is the opposite. It's those Christians who are sent into the world and are not distinct. It's those who claim Jesus and feel comfortable around those who do not believe like them, but they never actually influence them at all. It's the Christians who just enjoy too much of what the world offers, all while claiming it's their freedoms in Christ that gives them the right to do so. Listen, man, I'm, I'm going to tell you this morning. If your freedoms in Christ make you apathetic towards your sin, if your so-called freedoms in Christ make you callous towards the destruction that evil wrecks on others' lives, if your freedoms in Christ make you dismissive of other brothers and sisters who do not see things like you do, if your freedoms in Christ lead you to having less of a burden to be distinct and share Jesus with others, then you are not who you think you are. Because that is not any kind of freedom that Jesus ever bought for you. That is bondage straight from the depths of hell. I can tell you certainly what this world does not need. The world does not need progressive, hipster, cool Christians who pass off grotesque forms of entertainment as art. It does not need Christians who are prideful about their ability to blend right in with society. If you are constantly around non-Christians and like a chameleon, you can fit right in and you never influence them for Jesus. God simply is not impressed. No, what this world needs are followers of Jesus who are completely sold out for him, who engage in deep relationships with those who are far from him and challenge and enlighten and influence and serve and love them. It needs followers of Christ who will not call evil good, who will seek to keep their eyes and their hearts pure and who refuse to be as enamored with anything as they are with Jesus. And who are willing to work side by side with other followers spreading the name of Jesus all to the tune of the glory of God. Now, many of you know, no, I grew up in a coach's home. I've mentioned that before on weekends growing up, I would watch game film with my dad. That's just what it was like in the Parks household. Right? And so, why well, I, I, I believe that I watched the game a little differently than a casual observer would. And it's not that I don't like the big exciting plays like a long touchdown pass or big kickoff returns, but there's one play in particular that I enjoy watching more than any other. And it's a screen pass. If you don't know football this morning, I'm going to try to describe it to you so you can understand why I enjoyed this this morning. In, in a screen pass, right, the offense has to try and trick the defense into thinking they're about to make a good play. 
Okay, and so what has to happen for successful screen pass is almost everyone on the field needs to sacrifice themselves. So the big, the big fat guys on the field, right, the linemen, guess what their job is? On every other play, they're, they're, used to not, they're used to moving in a really small area, and their job basically is just to get in the way, right, to not let anybody behind them. But during the screen pass, here's what they have to do. They have to fake like they've made a terrible block, and then they have to sprint downfield. I don't know if you know linemen, they don't like sprinting. They're just, they're just not up for it, right? Now, wide receivers, they're the divas on the outside, okay? Wide receivers, typically, their job is to go run a route with the hopes that the ball will be thrown to them, and all they have to do is catch it, and then they'll do some dance and get all the attention and glory, okay? But on a screen pass, they know they're not getting the ball thrown to them. But in all successful screens, here's what happens. The wide receivers are to go down the field, and they're to give up their bodies and hit and block defenders and get in the way. Then you got the quarterback, always the dandy boy, Right? Quarterbacks get all the headlines, they hate getting hit, but guess what their job is in the screen pass? They're to hold on to the ball as long as they can and throw it at the last possible second right before they get crushed. And all of this is designed for this, so that a running back will catch a pass with a whole group of defenders behind him and nothing but teammates ahead of him to block the few remaining. And when it's done perfectly and everyone works together, everyone sacrifices, everyone absorbs a cost, and the running back gets all the glory and runs into the end zone. Do you realize that's what you've been called to? And you're not the running back? Do you you realize you've been called to so much more than just your own wishes and dreams? You've been called to take the hits. You've been called to sprint down the field. You've been called to throw yourself in front of others. You've been called to be stretched outside of your comfort zone, to live for something other than yourself, to serve other people, and to share the gospel. And you've been called to do it all, not for the glory of yourself, but for the glory of Jesus Christ. And there is no better way to live. There is no more fulfilling mission to pursue. There is nothing else worth sacrificing for, nothing else worth chasing, nothing else worth experiencing cost for. It's what Jesus wants for you. It's what Jesus wants for us. It's what he prayed for us. So church, let's get to it. Man, this week, invite your neighbor over for dinner this week. Before today is over, schedule a lunch with someone in your life who does not know Jesus. Reach out to a classmate tomorrow. Find the ways, find a way over the next few days to use your gifts and your talent and resources to better someone else's life and not just your own in the name of Jesus. Just look out. And as you go, go from this place to someone who's been sent out on mission because you have been. So Jesus prayed that we would unify around this awesome, amazing calling, and let's bring him glory in all that we do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much this morning, God, for the, for the many people in this room who I know that based on your power in their lives, they look out. And they look out and they love and they serve others in the name of Jesus and the glory of Jesus. But I know, God, that, that, that all of us could do more. We could all do this better. And so, God, I first pray that for the one that all this is just foreign to you because they've never given their lives to Jesus. They never, they've never understood that once, once he is in place, selflessness leads to joy. Service leads to joy. God, cost is not pain. So God, first of all, we pray for those who need to believe in Christ for the first time, that you would convince them as they're sitting now, that your spirit would quicken them to salvation, that they would trust in you right now. 
And God, for the rest of us, let us take stock of what you've given us. Let us look at our resources. Let us look at our lot in life. Let us look at our abilities. Let us look at even the difficult times that we're facing. And may we ask you this morning, how do we use these for the glory of God? How do I leverage even this for the good of others? And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to have an opportunity to respond. Um, and, and we're going to sing of the worth and the wonder of God and, and how holy he is um, and how undeserved um, the grace and love that we receive on a daily basis is. And so, um, yeah, we have an opportunity to respond to um, what the Spirit's doing in your life. And so um, I just want to repeat what Brenda said. Man, if you don't know the Lord, if you've not given your life to him, don't leave this place without knowing him. Um, your life will change and, and, and your spirit will be made whole with him. And so um, do that during this song and let one of us know about it if you can. Um, but my hope is that these words would not just be words of a song that you just sing because they're on the screen, but that they'd be an, an echo of your heart um, that you'd be able to um, connect with and, and make this a prayer from yourself this morning. So we have an opportunity to be unified as a body through worship and glorify Jesus Christ.